Hello, listeners. Happy April. April is Jazz Appreciation Month, a time to spotlight the heritage of jazz music and its importance to American culture. In honor of this, we're talking today with the founder of Jazz Impact, a company that uses the art of jazz to develop business skills. This episode was recorded before COVID-19 really hit the fan here in the U.S., which is why you won't hear references to the virus in today's conversation. I hope you enjoy this virus-free 30 minutes. I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, the layperson's guide to enjoying music's benefits. We are talking today about music's application in a business setting to increase creativity, agile thinking, teamwork, and empathy. With me today is Dr. Michael Gold, who founded Jazz Impact in 1999 to use the art of jazz within businesses to develop creative and innovative thinking. Michael has brought his interactive workshops to some of the world's largest companies and organizations, including General Mills, Target, IBM, the Mayo Clinic, and the United Nations. Michael has a PhD in music from New York University. He has also held senior management positions in the real estate and financial services industries, and he uses the art of jazz to teach leadership development for MBA programs at Northwestern University and the University of Minnesota. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks so much for having me, Mindy. Great to have you. I have been hearing this term 21st century skills recently, the idea that the skills needed for success in today's world are creativity, adaptability in a changing economy, empathy and ability to recognize patterns. And there's this concern that education is increasingly focused on routines, right answers, standardization, even though business leaders are looking for people who bring novelty, imagination, and an ability to collaborate. Some people have argued that the best way to create these kinds of thinkers is to integrate the arts with other subjects in school. Talk to us about what your thoughts are on this idea of 21st century skills, the skill set needed for today's workplace and the future. Sure. I think there's a danger in separating the 21st century from the 20th century in this particular area of uh, the use of arts in management science, some very interesting work had started about 1978-1980 in looking at the way that artists thought about change. And uh, that started to happen way before we hit the uh, dot-com revolution. And I think it's important to keep focus on the fact that things radically changed uh, with the internet. Mm -hmm. The role of the arts has always been to sort of broadcast how change is, is changing our society and challenge people with, with thoughts that, may be uncomfortable or difficult, uh, really good art <laughs> upsets things and uh, challenges the status quo. Now, one thing about business is that it has always relied upon stability and the status quo as something that gave them structure 
to move things forward in terms of the bottom line and uh, market uh, predictions and so forth. That radically changed from about 1990 until 2010. I mean, that's roughly, you know, two decades. And, and did that change come about because of what was happening with the internet? I believe so. Okay. Now you started Jazz Impact in 1999. What was the impetus for starting that? I was asked to do it um, by, by a uh, yes, Bell Laboratories mm. in New Jersey in 1999. I had a very close friend who was an executive, and he knew that uh, you know that I had a PhD in jazz performance, that I play with great musicians in New York. And he, he said, um, why don't you bring a jazz ensemble into one of our uh, executive meetings and talk about how you guys work together and what's going on. Mm. And I did that and they really loved it. Uh, so we came back, we did more. Mm. Time Magazine picked it up. Oh, and, okay. and, and the rest and, is history. Yeah, <laughs> oh, interesting. Can you describe what the, these workshops look like when you go into some of these businesses and uh, organizations? You do some serious learning, but you mix that with a lot of fun in a jazz-based experience, and you claim that people will never forget it. <laughs> Can you tell us just in a, a, a nutshell, about 60 seconds, what these interactive workshops are like? <laughs> in 60 seconds? Um... <laughs> Yeah, that's going to cost you $10,000. No, I'm only <laughs> kidding. Uh, no, but really, um, I found that most people don't know much about jazz. So when you hit people with a jazz performance, it really opens their mind to, wow, how do these people do what they do? Okay, so do you kind of open with just a demonstration? Like, here's some jazz. Oh, absolutely. Take it in. Absolutely. Okay. And then they just get to experience that back and forth between the performers and taking turns soloing and the rest of them are kind of supporting that and then somebody else jumps in. Right. It's really about the nature of leadership, which we've been taught is something that is embodied in one person and that everybody follows that leader. Uh, well, that's that's a really good metaphor for the symphony orchestra to demonstrate. Mm. But when you look at the difference between what people are doing in a symphony orchestra and what they're doing in a jazz ensemble, you suddenly see that you're looking at the difference between uh, 20th century thinking and, to, to your point, 21st century thinking. Mm. Symphony musicians are reading a score yeah. on which every note, every rhythm, uh, even the emotions are defined. Mm -hmm. And the jazz musicians are challenged with a fundamental musical design that they then have to create from and do it together in real time. Okay. So you voiced a concern earlier in the conversation about differentiating between 20th century skills and 21st century skills, but you are acknowledging that there is some truth to that when you describe the the symphony orchestra as more 20th century skills and uh, jazz more 21st. Yeah, let's be clear about one thing. I am not in any way passing a value judgment on sure. classical music or jazz, but sure. the skills that are required of the jazz musician 
have always been required of organizations. And when we look back to the 20th century, the reason that organizations were able to function with the efficiency that they could was not because they were running their programs like a symphony orchestra as much as the fact that there was stability and there was predictability. Mm. And that's what you get with a symphony orchestra. You know, somebody mm-hmm. goes to hear Beethoven's Fifth yep. and they're going to hear Beethoven's Fifth. Yep. And if, as a musician, if you change any of those notes, uh-huh. uh, you're not you're not improving anything. You're you're making a wrong choice. Sure. Well, this, the circumstances with predictability and change are so radically different now that organizations can't function like a symphony orchestra unless they're producing widgets mm-hmm. or you know uh, assembly lines uh, that need to produce exactly the same thing every time but the need for creative thinking the need for independent thinking the need for emergent leadership uh, distributed leadership leadership at every level of the organization uh, creative thinking at every level of the organization that is just, you know, bottom line stuff now, as opposed to the 20th century. Mm-hmm. What are some of the buzzwords that you're hearing from business leaders in terms of the skills and characteristics that they're looking for in employees? Wow, that's a great question. I, You know, that changes depending on the industry. Uh, I've done a lot of work in healthcare, and um, one of the most important factors there is empathy and the capacity to see bigger pictures, uh, the capacity to understand your own role at a micro level, but at the same time be able to see what you're doing at the macro level. And, okay. and is that how you would describe empathy or is I, when I think of empathy, I kind of think of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Well, yeah, but I'm very clear when I talk about empathy in in my programs, I'm not talking about sympathy. I'm talking about, and this is where we get into listening, the capacity to recognize how your own assumptions and expectations and prejudices and belief systems really impact the way that you are able to grasp the situation that's emerging in the moment. As jazz musicians, we have to come to every performance with uh, infant ears or infant eyes, the capacity to see the world completely anew, which is very difficult and probably impossible given that, you know, our brains function based on memories of past experience. But if we're aware of that, and if we're able to practice what I call empathic listening, the ability to suspend, uh, recognize your own assumptions and suspend that or just try to suspend it, what you find is that you start to hear all of these incredible things that you didn't hear before. Uh, And that's what I do, the exercise I do using blindfolds, uh, because uh, certain cognitive scientists tell us that um, hearing tends to be about 80% visual in that 
we're taking our cues in deciding what the meaning of what we're hearing is from what we're seeing. Sight is a a constant. You can look and scan and uh, edit, you know, in your own mind what you think you're seeing and change your mind about it. But sound, as in the words that I'm speaking right now, is ephemeral. So it's there and then it's gone. And you depend on your memory to to understand what you've just heard. So would you say empathy is the same as active listening then, the way you describe it? Well, again, you got to be careful of these buzzwords because the 20th century, you know, I'm going to go back and revise what I said. I think it is important to divide between the 20th and the 21st century. What I meant back there was that the meaning of art should not be construed to one century versus another. But in terms of management science, yes, I think there's a huge difference between the 20th century and the 21st century. The jargon that came out of the 20th century in management uh, paradigms was so full of ideas that change so quickly that this idea of active listening, well, what does it really mean? In For most people, and I use that term, I say, you know, you probably think that you've been trained to be active listeners, but you know, what does that really mean? Uh, it means that you're, you're sort of emulating people's body language, you're making eye contact, you're repeating back to them mm-hmm. what you think you've heard. Mm-hmm. But in fact, what you're doing is is you're you're posing and you're really what you're doing is you're preparing your response Mm. um, to some agenda that you have that you want to push forward. Now, empathic listening is a term that I learned about from a um, Harvard Business Review article, and it comes from the advertising world. Uh, Now. Yeah, I saw that quote on your website, the top 10 companies in, I guess this is the 2015 Global Empathy Index increased in value more than twice as much as the bottom 10 and generated 50% more savings. I didn't know there was a Global Empathy Index. <laughs> what What is that? Well, that, that was put together by IBM, and that, that was a pretty fascinating study. I was very, very encouraged by certain trends that seemed to be happening. Those trends are not as obvious uh, now as they were, but IBM was all over this idea of empathic listening, which, you know, if we look back to where that term originated, the advertising industry is very, very dependent on trends that are emerging If you look at those trends as an advertiser with an expectation of something that maybe worked in the past, we'll call it the gravity of past success, if you're looking for something that you think works, you're going to miss what is new. You're going to miss what disrupts the market. You're going to miss all the signs that could give you the innovative leg up on being able to determine what people need because you're looking for something that you think is going to work. So where do you look for those signs of the next best thing? 
Well, I don't really know. That's up to the industry that I'm speaking to. But I can tell you in jazz that when we come to an improvisation, uh, you know, when we start to play a tune, something is worn and played as take the A train. How do you take a tune that you've played a thousand times before mm -hmm. and play it with infant eyes or infant ears? How do you how do you hear new every single time? So, what so how do really... you how do you teach that to your groups then? Because when I go watch a jazz concert, I am just in awe of what they do with improvising. I'm a classic. I'm classically trained pianist. So if I don't have my music in front of me, I kind of get this deer in the headlights look. <laughs> <laughs> so when I watch these performances of jazz, I'm just in awe, but that doesn't allow me to go home and do the same thing. So how do you transfer some of these collaborative skills and creative thinking and agile thinking to the people in your workshops? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a difference between a keynote and a workshop. A workshop can go for two, two and a half hours, or even with a break, it can go for, you know, a full day. In that circumstance, I will start by uh, having the ensemble play a beautiful, simple ballad by Miles Davis, actually written by Bill Evans. It's called Blue and Green. Mm. And I ask people to listen and to really think about the experience they're having and what they're hearing. Oh, and you know, this is sounding a little familiar, kind of like the improv that we had talked about. In fact, why don't we just do that right now? Sure. The improv is uh, try this at home, a hack, an experiment that will enhance listeners' lives with music. Talk to us about the improv that you recommend for listeners, which is also part of what you do in the workshops. Great. I would say find a recording that you love, uh, something that you've listened to many times before, and listen to it with your eyes open. <laughs> listen to it lo looking around the room. Think about what it is that you're experiencing as you're listening. And write down on a piece of paper some ideas that come to mind without having uh, the opportunity to be in the room with, with everybody while they're doing that. I would say view that as one separate experience. Then what you want to do is really think about, you know, what was going on in my mind while I was listening to that? What, what came to mind? Take a, uh, I use blindfolds with my audiences and, you know, they completely cover your eyes. So you're, you're eliminating your visual sense. And what that does is it accentuates your capacity to hear. Then go back and listen to the same exact piece and write down what that experience was. Mm. Now, that, that may seem really simple and trivial. What we find in many of our workshops is that people hear differently when vision is not involved. Mm -hmm. And what they hear is the complexity of the connection between the sounds. Generally speaking, what they hear when vision is involved is a mo more coherent 
whole experience. And people's reactions are very imaginative. I imagined this scenario, or I saw these colors, or I saw this picture, or I imagined myself in this place. And that's totally valid, totally authentic. But what they hear when they take away the visual stimulus is a much more complex interaction of voices. And they also find that they're surprised by things because expectations and assumptions are suspended simply because they don't have all of that information coming in visually, mm-hmm. which which activates all of those memories, which then creates assumptions and expectations. So by taking that away, they tend to hear more profoundly what the connections between sounds are. Now, if I have a workshop uh, and I have the uh, advantage of time with people, I will do similar exercises in terms of conversations based on certain themes between people and really start to sensitize them to listening to the nuances in people's voices, if it's a dyad between two people, or if it's a trio, uh, one listener really being able to hear how the two people are listening to each other and responding to each other. And this gets translated into what the imperatives are for that particular organization, why they're bringing me in to do this exercise. So when they bring you in, do they talk about specific characteristics that they really want to emphasize in the workshop, whether it's collaborative thinking, teamwork? Exactly. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Well, if listeners do want to learn more about your work, more about Jazz Impact, tell us your website. It's www.jazz-impact.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, Love to communicate directly. My email is uh, michael at jazz-impact.com. And uh, be very happy to talk to anybody uh, who's interested in these ideas. Great. Yeah, I'll include links to all of those in the show notes. I ask all of my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Do you have a story to share with us today? Sure do. When I was uh, growing up in the Hudson Valley in New York, the Hudson Valley was home to Woodstock, as many people have heard of, but uh, there's a difference between the, the music festival and the town. Uh, The town of Woodstock was home to the band, which was Bob Dylan's first uh, ensemble. Mm. It was home to many, many, many great folk musicians, and uh, many great bluegrass musicians came out of there. There was a songwriter by the name of Danny Del Santo. Danny was really an iconoclastic character, very moved by Woody Guthrie, Mm. came from a hard-working blue-collar class family and wrote the most moving songs, was a terrific guitarist and a a talented pianist. And um, the band was just phenomenal. It's how I learned to play upright bass. Robert Poole 
who was from Austin, Texas, uh, was was an upright bass player, and I learned from him. One night, they were playing at Vassar College. Danny was playing guitar and piano, and his violin player, Evan Stover, who was a member of the David Bromberg Band at the time, and they were playing in a living room in one of the Vassar College dorms, and this must have been 1978, probably. And uh, it was a very relaxed situation, but it was people had come to hear the music, and they were all sitting around uh, drinking beer and smoking pot and having a great old time. Uh, and uh, I had gone, I guess I was a groupie. Uh, <laughs> I think I was about 17 or 16. And, you know, I, I was just amazed by these guys. So the, the capacity to hear them as a duo right in very close proximity was great. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting right there and, and Danny and Evan started playing a song called uh, Under Blue Mountain, a love song that Danny had written about a, a woman that um, I guess had broken his heart at a gig they were doing up in the Adirondacks. Uh, he was just so charismatic. He was into the tune, and I was just mesmerized. And he started wandering away from the harmony. Hmm. And uh, his singing became more and more filled with emotion, and uh, his harmonies were completely dissonant. And I was like, what is going on? Is this guy forgetting the tune? And I mean, this all went down very, very quickly. And I looked up and I could see that everybody was sort of talking and not paying attention. And Danny, he's a big guy, he's a very heavy set guy. He just, all of a sudden, he, he's completely not playing and he was banging on the piano with his, with his fists and he had stopped singing. And all of a sudden he, he rocked over backwards and he tipped over and he fell over and he crashed to the floor and everybody became silent and so you could hear a pin drop and I'm just looking at him and he stands up and he's he's crying and this is a guy who at that time was probably in his mid-twenties late-twenties you know a real polished entertainer although very emotional and Evan the uh, violinist just turned to, to everybody who was sitting there with their jaws dropped and said, you know, the next time people are playing for you, um, perhaps you'll listen. Mm. And uh, uh, I was so impacted by that and by the power of the audience and the power of the musician. Uh, it, it awoke in me such an awareness of the power of music and the power of listening and the sacred uh, space between the performer and the, the audience and the trust that exists there or doesn't exist. Thank you so much to Dr. Gold for sharing with us today and to you listeners for joining us. 
Before I sign off, I wanted to let you know about a unique opportunity that we podcast lovers and listeners have to support Meals on Wheels America's COVID-19 Response Fund. This is an excellent charity that delivers meals and social interaction to seniors who need these services more than ever right now. Thanks to Reviews for Good, every new review on Podchaser through April 16 will result in a 25 cent donation to Meals on Wheels COVID-19 Response Fund. And if podcasts reply, which I most certainly will do, they'll double the donation. Podchaser is a comprehensive podcast database that lists all podcasts, past, present, and future. So before you hit play on your next podcast episode or get started on a different activity, I'd really appreciate if you take a quick moment to click the link in the show notes to leave a review. The show notes are found at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast slash episode 37. You can leave as many reviews as you'd like. So while you're there, leave a review for Enhanced Life with Music and all your favorite podcasts. If you're listening to this after April 16, 2020, the fundraiser will have ended, but I'd still love for you to help me out with a review. Stay safe, stay healthy, and until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.